Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you for joining us this week. Our show this week is a bit different. We're doing a collaborative episode with the Bearded Vegans, aka Andy Tabar and Paul Steller, who are, of course, the hosts of a fabulous podcast that delights in dissecting the ethical gray areas of living a vegan life. We love the Bearded Vegans, and we're super excited to have a chance to talk to Andy and Paul one-on-one, or I guess two-on-two. Oh, and one of the ways that this is different is that it is a joint celebration. Does that mean I get a joint? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe later. <laughs> They're we legal now. Actually, yeah, that's, that's a to- you wrote that comment for me, and it's totally stupid, because as, as you know, <laughs> marijuana don't do nothing for me. It's one of the tragedies of my life. Yeah, that's funny because I didn't even tell you I wrote that in the intro. I was waiting for you to say it. <laughs> anyway, and I said we, it. You did. I you did said a great it. job. Yeah, we're lifting the veil today, as you can tell by the fact that I said I wrote that in the intro. We don't wing it all. Uh, and that is one of the ways we are celebrating our 600th podcast episode. And the Bearded Vegans are celebrating their sixth anniversary. So it's like a, a joint celebration, which calls for joints. So although we will have separate introductory interviews on each of our podcasts, the bulk of the interview, our main conversation, will actually air on each of our podcasts, which is a first time for us. And it's the same thing with our bonus content. We're each going to be airing that to our respective behind the paywall communities. This is so fun, by the way. So So if you if you do listen to both our hen house and the bearded vegans, you're going to have an extra couple of hours this week to (laughs) to, so you should should plan ahead because they're the same episode, pretty much the same episode. And it was really, really fun to to do this. Uh, so such a lovely conversation. And as Jasmine mentioned, we're going to be continuing that on the bonus. And and as always, if you're a Flock member, you'll get the link to the bonus in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast goes up. You can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock, and of course, if you can afford it, no pressure, you can join for 10, well, a little pressure. No, no pressure. You can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Oh, and if you are a Flock member, please also join us for our first Flock Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on, you guessed it, the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, which is 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, where we focus on how to be better activists and how to take better care of ourselves. And we speak to some very inspiring guests. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And you can set up some one-on-one with me too if you want to chat with me about your activism or your veganism or your your various thoughts on how to change the world for animals i've been really enjoying those you can call jasmine and and talk about anything you can talk about your love life she'll (laughs) like that that would be kind of fun yeah that's true (laughs) anyway 600 episodes are you so excited I'm just so, actually, no, like, I just don't get as excited about these numbers as you do. But you love to have a reason to celebrate. So, you know, every 100 episodes, we have a party. I try to get on board. But, you know, 601 is exciting, too. (laughs) Well, wait till you hear the celebration we have for 601. It's true. I, I love to celebrate. I think it's, you know, one of my favorite parts about 
living is just finding any opportunity you can to celebrate. And to me, every hundred episodes is worth celebrating. It's like why people have big parties for their 40th or 50th birthday. It is once there's a zero at the end of something, it is something exciting. So we get to celebrate every hundred episodes and every uh, year anniversary for our hen house too. So we've been on the air for 11 and a half years now. And I remember when we first started, we just were kind of going with it. We barely really knew what a podcast was. And I bought the book Podcasting for Dummies and I read it front to back. And I used to go take these courses at the Apple store. They offered them for free on podcasting. And I went to the same course over and over again. And and it was you know, we, we kind of muddled our way through it. And now here we are 600 episodes later. And since we definitely used to have more than one guest on, we had two guests on in the earlier days for many years. I think we've definitely had a thousand activists on the show. So it does make me think back to that one comment we got early on when we received some seed funding from someone who was supportive of our vision and supportive of what we were doing. But their one concern was like, will you have enough people to interview? And it's yeah. just, it's yeah. comical to think like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so Yeah, it reminds me of some, when I used to work at the court, one of the judges saying to me, I don't think it was about the podcast, but it was just about doing animal rights in general. It's like animal law in general. He was like, well, there's the cruelty law, but what else is there? (laughs) Yeah, people are pretty (laughs) stupid. (laughs) Speaking of celebrating things, we have other things to celebrate, which is last week we talked about how Canada Goose stopped selling fur. And since the, since we recorded that, there's been another giant announcement about fur. Do you want to break the news? Although people might have heard of it by now. So, yeah, Neiman Marcus has decided to stop selling fur as of 2023. It's not immediate. Why can't why, do, why would they do this? Can't they just do it immediately? It always perplexes me. Like, why, we, why do we have to wait two years? I guess they have to use up all the dead animals they've already killed. Uh, but this is huge. Neiman Marcus, very high in store. They also control Bergdorf Goodman, uh, which all another extremely high in store. They say they we are delivering an ultimate luxury experience for our customers and their evolving preferences in their fur salons from then on. And it just seems like amazing that all of a sudden they are falling like dominoes. All, it's all these high end designers. I, I guess fur is going to start being a low-end commodity, and then it's probably going to disappear completely, knock on wood. And, you know, it does make you think, like, why fur? Why is fur falling at the moment? And and I think one of the reasons is obvious, that it has been such a target of the animal rights movement. But also, obviously, it's easy for a lot of people to give up fur because they don't wear it, uh, or they don't, you know, they, they might have a fur collar but they don't even think of it as being a dead animal. It's not that hard for people to give it up. So, you know, I keep switching back and forth between thinking this is a sign of the times, we're winning, and how would we possibly move this into, say, wool, a fabric that almost everybody wears that is extremely abusive to animals that nobody knows, virtually nobody knows except us, that it's extremely abusive to animals. And and can we? And I mean, I guess that's that's the job. I don't want to cast any uh, dark light on, on this because I think it's huge. It's just that as with every victory in this movement, it's only a stepping stone to a really significant victory. It's maybe if we use it properly, it'll be a way to get there. But 
you know, all that being said, I'm super excited. Right. I'm excited too. I think it's great to to kind of chip away at this horrible industry of animal exploitation, especially within the various the, the various issues. This one obviously being fashion and there's nothing fashionable about dead animal skins or body parts. It is to me probably going to follow in the same trajectory as I think food is going, where the only hope for for animals as far as ending factory farming to me is actually just introducing the cell grown meat. And I think the same thing will hold true for the fashion industry that it might wind up being that we continue to sort of uh, end these horrifically cruel exploitation systems like fur and, and perhaps other ones such as leather and down. But I think more likely we'll start to mainstream the cell grown alternatives to animal skins. And there's a lot of technology on the horizon about like, you know, uh, uh, various ways of creating these uh, ethically. So my guess is... (laughs) it'll follow a similar trajectory. And as it becomes easier and easier to buy, you know, 3D technology or, uh, you know, leather grown from pineapples or coffee or something like that, then it'll be easier and easier to pass the legislation to end it. So to me, it's not so much about just ending it, but it's like ending it while also replacing it with the ethical alternative. Yeah. And I think that leather is the perfect example, though. I must say, I haven't heard about coffee. Is that true? Or did you make that up? I have heard pineapple. I'm pretty sure it's true. I'm going to Google it right now. Coffee. It could well be true. I don't, uh, I don't, I don't know everything here. It is true. It is. There's something called coffee leather, which is uh, created by uh, part of the coffee bean or yeah, part of the coffee bean. So I don't think it's the most common one, but it is very sustainable to harvest and it it looks like it it is gaining a little traction in some sort of high-end fashion, which obviously makes it not attainable at the moment. But as the innovation grows, it'll continue to get more and more accessible to us. I do think that the the whole leather thing is is a really exciting movement. I think it's going to catch on. And I think that one is huge because not just because leather is everywhere, but because it's a hugely important byproduct of slaughter. Like if they can't sell the leather, they're really stuck. Uh, That's a, you know, every component of what goes into the profits for meat companies is important. It it creates their margin of profit. So yeah, leather. And, you know, when I've mentioned faux leather or plant-based leather to people outside of the movement, they've all, you know, as long as it's not about something you eat, people tend to think it's really cool. I mean, we've spoken before, and of course, you're very aware of the the whole cosmetics enthusiasm for people who are not vegan, which strikes me as crazy. But, you know, I don't I don't control how crazy people are. I just have to live with it. So there's a biomaterial that's called, I think it's called Tomtex. And it, it's kind of weird because it seems to be made from food waste. And one of the food wastes to turn it into leather is discarded coffee grounds, which is great. But the other one is discarded like sea life shells. So seafood shells, they call it, but I'm saying sea life shells. So it's kind of weird because it's like ending the exploitation of one kind of animal to replace it with the other. But on the plus side, I'm definitely personally drinking enough coffee that I could probably single-handedly uh, create an industry for this <laughs> this leather made out of coffee grounds. But uh, anyway, so there's lots of reasons to celebrate. And as we've spoken about before, regardless of whether you see this as a whole huge victory, because obviously there's still the cruelty of 
the wool industry and the down industry and insert the blank industry, we should really stop for a moment and celebrate this because I've certainly been to a ton of anti-fur protests in my day. I know you have too. Uh, The ones that you used to do in Soho. Yeah, that was a huge part of my life for years, a weekly protest against a fur salon in Soho way back in the day. That was back in the 90s. Right. Yeah, but now, like back in the '90s, you not you would not have necessarily thought, and and this is where we will be. Neiman Marcus, this is a big deal, you know. And even if you don't believe me, that even if you're kind of rolling your eyes because we still have all of this other cruelty, I guarantee you, I, I am also rolling my eyes. But it can coexist with taking a moment to celebrate, in my opinion. And and the long the the longevity of our activism could depend on the ability to stop and celebrate a little bit. So speaking of which, I think we should move to our celebratory joint. I mean, our celebratory joint episode (laughs) with the Bearded Vegans, which I've been really looking forward to this. This is a very different type of episode today. Uh, we're, We're all kind of lifting the veil, like I said, and talking about what it's been like. They've been on the air for six years. We've been on the air for, we're in our 12th. uh, And and just taking this moment to sort of assess like what's working, what isn't, how do we deal with guests? What if someone retroactively has issues against them? We get into that more in the bonus material. Like how do we deal with that in the current day? Our relationships to our co-hosts, all of that. We're going to talk about The Bearded Vegans, co-hosted by Paul Steller and Andy Tabar, is a weekly podcast that delights in dissecting the ethical gray areas of living a vegan life. Recently voted the best vegan podcast in the Veg News Veggie Awards. They challenge themselves and their listeners to think critically about issues within the vegan community and how we all make our activism more effective. Andy Tabar is an animal rights activist, movie theater etiquette enthusiast, and owner of one of my favorite shops, Compassion Co., an organic USA-made vegan clothing line. As an activist, Andy has most notably completed three tours with the 10 Billion Lives Tour, traveling to nearly every continental state and having over 10,000 one-on-one conversations, educating college students and concert goers about the cruelty inherent in animal agriculture. Currently, Andy lives nomadically in his van as he brings Compassion Co. to VegFests coast to coast, all while eating at as many vegan restaurants as possible. Yeah, and actually, we shouldn't have said currently there because I think he did have to go on pause for COVID. But, you know, I think he'll be back to that soon. Paul Steller works in data and has taught math at both the high school and college levels. He fronts a band called Continuous Improvement. And when he's, he is not, according to him, consuming monstrous amounts of pizza or indulging his borderline obsessive love of all things buffalo flavored, he can be found playing Dungeons and Dragons, all while simultaneously podcasting about it on Roll to Hit. The Bearded Vegans will be joining Marianne and I in conversation right after this. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can Follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know, info at ourhenhouse.org. Welcome to our henhouse, Andy and Paul. 
Thank you for having us. Oh, I'm so excited. I love a celebration. I don't know if celebration can be a value, but if it is a value, it is one of my biggest values. Like I have champagne in the fridge for like, you know, when I get a good haircut, like whatever it is, I appreciate the opportunity to celebrate. And today we have all of these reasons to celebrate. I'm so excited to be collaborating with you guys on our Hen Houses episode 600 and your six year anniversary. So mazel tov. Thank you so much. It's been it's been a long journey, not as long as your journey, but it feels like a long journey. (laughs) No, six years is a while. Um, I actually there's a question that I have been really, really eager to ask both of you, which is like six years ago, you called this podcast the Bearded Vegans. But like what happens if one of you wants to shave? (laughs) I think. It was the bearded vegans. I feel like was the name that Andy and I settled on just because at that time we were like, yeah, I guess we'll do a podcast. What should we call Mm -hmm. it? We both have beards and we're both vegan. I guess it can be the beard vegans. I feel like if we had known that this would be such a controversial (laughs) topic years later, we would have put more thought into it. (laughs) Well, I think it's a great name. And I I like all of your logos having the beards in them. Uh, I wish I had started like the hairy leg vegans or something for the all the times that I don't shave my legs. But that's for episode 700. We did come up with our our name kind of similarly. We had had no idea this podcast wouldn't last. And we were just like, well, it would be kind of fun to call it hens because we're kind of hens and we love hens. And okay, let's call it the hen house. And then, of course, the hen house was taken. There was no domain. And we just stuck our in front of it. And here we are all these years later. I do feel like our hen house both has the nice ring to it when you say it out loud, but then it has the nice abbreviation too. So it's like, oh, oh. it's oh. it's just like, it visually looks good when it's written as abbreviation or when it's written out. And I think that uh, I can appreciate a good, a good abbreviation. Well, yeah, it's I, like a constant revelation. And let you in a little secret. <laughs> yes, I please. fully shaved my beard over the course of this pandemic. No. Oh my yeah. God. Twice. In fact, actually it was both for <laughs> Halloween related costumes and, uh, you know, this is something that has come up. And ultimately, I think, Paul, you were very attached to your beard at the beginning of the podcast, less so now. And I think for us now, we've we've put it out in the universe. The beards do not define us. So perhaps okay. one day there will be some beardless vegans. But for now, it makes good <laughs> Uh, that I might trademark that before you get to it, because I, too, am a beardless <laughs> vegan. But... <laughs> Anyway, yeah, I, I definitely agree with Andy that the beards defined at least me a lot more when we started the podcast. And now I'm like, I could take it or leave it. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, it I is can't funny. I believe when we're just... revealing this for the first time in this episode. <laughs> yeah. This is like, this is breaking vegan news. Yeah. Uh, well, did you feel lonely, Paul, when Andy shaved his? Like you were out in the world by yourself with like facial hair or. No, I was happy that. for him. He was living his best beardless life, and I can only okay. I can only be happy for him for that. I mean, we do have to let people sort of fly the nest or fly the coop or whatever the terrible saying is. Uh, but anyway, for anybody who has been living under a slab of tofu, or maybe they've been <laughs> hidden by their giant beard themselves, what is bearded vegans? I, I'm pretty sure everyone knows, but I'd like to hear it in your own words. Yeah, so this is this is a podcast. As we said, we started six years ago. I feel like it's definitely evolved over time in terms of the things that we like to focus on or the discussions we like to have. But it's definitely 
a podcast where we like to get into the minutia of things. We like to have these, you know, conversations that are not necessarily vegan 101 conversations, but more so the ones that are going to hit these kind of ethical gray areas of veganism where we don't believe that there is an easy yes or no, right or wrong answer, but that having the conversation about the thing, about the issue is itself the benefit that, that, that you get, uh, as opposed to just like, okay, Paul and Andy had this episode and now we know the answer to this question. That's not, <laughs> I guess that that's not to me, at least that's not the, the point of our episodes. It's, it's the journey as cliche as that sounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of it for us is about creating kind of a, a sense of community. So what we're sort of hoping to do with the episodes is make it feel like you're having that conversation with your vegan best friends. And we get emails all the time from people saying that we're basically their vegan community of two and that they have these things that they want to talk about that maybe aren't, don't feel quite as safe to talk about with non-vegans because there'll be some sort of judgment about caring about, I, I don't know if there's beetles in the red dye or something like other, like non-vegans might think that that is such a, a non-issue, but you want to talk about it with other people. So that's kind of what we're trying to create with our podcast is that vegans talking amongst vegans, uh, kind of safe space for lack of a better term. Yeah. And it's an incredibly valuable contribution. And I don't think it's just vegans talking to non-vegans. That's a problem. Sometimes vegans talking to other vegans about these issues can get very emotional. And it's just great to have you guys like just parsing all these issues, laying out the, the pros and cons of different points of view without everybody having to get into a fist fight, which is a plus. <laughs> and I know that the, the, the format of bearded vegans is a lot different from our hen houses, but can you can you just kind of describe to people what a what a show looks like? So our, our format has changed a lot over time. I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point over the the course of this this conversation. But these days, if you tune in, we usually pretty quickly jump right into our main conversation. And I feel like we have a, a couple of different types of episodes. The main one is the one that Paul had pretty much mentioned, which was here is something that is a tough ethical issue. Usually our episodes are centered around like an essay or a think piece that somebody has written. For instance, we just recorded an episode that was asking, or that was making the, the statement that if vegans really care about animals, they'll save more animals by consuming insects. And so we took that, we take the article, we kind of go through paragraph by paragraph and respond to the points that are being made. And then we'll try to look at the bigger picture or pull out any extra points and just sort of see where the conversation goes from there. And that is like a very typical episode. But sometimes the episode is, this is the thing that vegans are talking about right now. For instance, the impossible Whopper, right? That was like the battlefield of veganism for a while. And we also love to do a good media review. We love to look at new vegan films, documentaries that come out and nitpick them for an hour and a half long and really get deep into it. So I'd say those are the typical formats of like the type of discussion you'll find on the show. Occasionally we do an interview, but those are pretty few and far between at this point. Do you feel like your perspective changes from those discussions or do you feel like you come into the show like this is how I feel about the Impossible Burger? I'm going to say it out loud. Paul and I are going to discuss it and that's still how I'm going to feel. Or do you feel like you shift within the process of either your dialogues with one another or perhaps when you start to engage with your community about the subject? 
I think we definitely do shift sometimes. I know a, a, the way that we try to approach a lot of discussions is Andy and I won't tell each other our perspectives on the things until we're actually recording so that it gives it like the the live reaction to what Andy's saying, what I'm saying. And, and a lot of times we do see eye to eye, but I think the more interesting episodes, the more captivating ones are the ones that we don't see eye to eye in some regard and that we ha- we're listening to each other's feedback or points. And then I, I found that I've changed some of how I feel in the episode. I think more so I see the change over time. And, you know, just recently we've been doing a thing where if we're going to have an episode that is maybe related to something we previously talked about or builds on something we previously talked about, maybe like a hundred episodes ago, we'll bring back that episode and play that first. And it is, I think, awesome to be able to listen to something we talked about two, three years ago and see, and then be able to discuss reflect on that and and talk about how we've changed or if we've changed our feelings. And, and so I think, you know, the short answer is we don't always, I don't always see the change in the episode, but certainly over time, I think we, I, at least I uh, do change my views on things. My favorite episodes are often the ones where I enter into it going, I know we should have an opinion on this and I don't know what my opinion is. Mm-hmm. And then through talking with Paul, I kind of figure out where I actually land on things. So it, it does happen. But yeah, our show is not designed to position us as teachers or authorities or people that have everything figured out. It's not the purpose of the show is not to be like, here's our essay on why we believe this thing, even though we do have very strong views and opinions. Sometimes the episode is like that. But for the most part, we're not trying to say we've got this all figured out and you need to think exactly like us. We're hoping to give people the tools to work this out for themselves and to think critically about things. At least I think that's where it was maybe more, this is how things are in the beginning. And now we're much more realizing that we think there's a bigger benefit in just giving people those tools to think about it for themselves. I totally agree with that. I think that's the, one of the great values that you provide. And, and like, we're reinventing the world here. Vegans are, we're reinventing the way the world operates and the way the world deals with animals and the way we eat. Uh, Like, I think it's really good to go into things, acknowledging that, our opinions can shift. And you said there are things that we should have an opinion about, but we don't. But, you know, of course we don't have an opinion about everything. Like sometimes it's new. Sometimes you have to think it through. And I think that's extraordinarily valuable. I think too many people have too much of a party line. But I I know that even though there are differences between our, our podcasts, I think at our core, we're both committed. The reason we do this is to strengthen the animal protection movement. Part of strengthening the movement is is strengthening the vegans and the way they think and the way they can act. And, and we're all very passionate about finding the overlaps between other social justice movements and, and to make this a stronger animal rights movement. And can you just talk a little bit about what you think is the role of a podcast in terms of helping to build a strong network of activists? Yeah, definitely. I, I think, uh, sp- speaking specifically, I guess, for for the Bearded Vegans, I think in addition to kind of the, the community aspect that Andy was talking about, I, th- I, I think I find myself going into a lot of these discussions thinking I know how I feel about this thing, but not really being able to articulate why I might feel about why I feel a certain way about something, or if it's just 
well, I know as a vegan, this is the way I should feel about this thing. And that's just the way that it is. And, and I imagine that, that that's how a lot of, a lot of uh, vegans feel about things. We know that something is wrong, but, but if someone pressed us about that, maybe we wouldn't be able to explain. And so I guess my hope is with the podcast that in having these discussions, it promotes people to, to think more deeply and critically, not only about the, the, the topics that we're talking about, but just in general, just, just thinking, promoting more critical thinking, having a more nuanced view on things, not just, I guess, believing something or, or having your talking points and regurgitating information just because you know that's what other vegans do and that's what you're supposed to do as a vegan, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think as a movement, we get really stale if all we're doing is regurgitating talking points. And mm-hmm. like, I think over the course of the podcast, I'm less interested in getting people to go vegan, although obviously I think that's incredibly important, but I'm more interested in getting people to think critically about what a just and equitable world will look like and how can we form new strategies and tactics and ways of interacting with other people on this planet to make that thing a reality. And I think that Mm. having a weekly discussion where we're trying to figure that out is something that is hopefully helpful to other people. Um, and, and in terms of the community aspect, I think that as a movement, we're really failing to focus on the recidivism that happens. A lot of people go vegan. A lot of people stop being vegan as well, according to a lot of the surveys that are out there. And so I think that providing that community is such a huge and important thing that if you, even if you're not an activist, that's like, yeah, on the front lines, so to speak, that mm-hmm. there is just so much value in creating content for other vegans to feel a sense of community. Yeah, I totally agree. That's such a big part of why we do our hen house too. And I think it's so important to really work on ending the recidivism or just really confronting it. And it's funny to hear you guys talk about how you're not like necessarily positioning yourselves as the authorities on a particular subject, because if you think back to how, uh, well, we were chatting about this earlier, that one of the reasons we started our hen house is because I, I really wanted people to have access to Marianne's brain and Marianne's perspectives. And, and then there were a lot of other reasons too, but that was one of the reasons I think she's like the smartest person that I have ever met and blah, blah, blah. But interestingly, since our hen house has been on the air for like, uh, you know, 600 episodes to 600 weeks, I do think that it, I, I find it challenging to disagree with her. I find it challenging if we don't see something the same way, because earlier on, I think everything, Thing I was thinking was based on Marianne's perspective because I think it's just a tr- truly phenomenal way of looking at every aspect. But if we differ in nuance, I get really uncomfortable with that because I don't know how to <laughs> I don't know how to position myself. And maybe it's not really the perspectives as so much as it is like the energy behind the outlook. Like Marianne tends to be kind of dismal sometimes or depressive about the way she looks at things. And I'm like, wait, let's find the hope. Let's find the good part. I'm really not sure how to react to this entire speech. (laughs) I was feeling very flattered. And now I'm a little, uh, I feel a little sad. No, but I think it's true. Like you're a realist. There's a lot to be depressed about. There's a lot to be really angry about and worried about it. I'm just, I always am just like grasping for, you know, grasping for the positivity and the hope. Anyway, I didn't mean to go on a tangent, but something about like the fact that you guys are coming to your conversations, sort of open-heartedly, open-mindedly trying to work your way through 
uh, topics. I think Marianne has very strong opinions about most things. And um, so that's another sort of difference, maybe. It's funny you say all that, Jasmine, because I feel that there is a strong parallel to the bearded vegans with all of what you just said. Because when I, when my brother approached me and was like, hey, I'm trying to start a podcast network. Do you want to start a podcast? I said, yeah, I guess I'll do it about veganism. Who would I do it with? Well, Andy is like my vegan go-to person. He's the person that's that I like admire the most about how he talks about veganism and all those things. So obviously, I'm going to have Andy on and... Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I feel like there was that that sort of respect and and also in the fact that Andy often refers to himself as a burnt out husk of a man. And I think I uh, tend to bring the more positive aspect on things, maybe not as much recently as I too become the realist. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> Andy, do you think that's an accurate depiction of our relationship? Well, you're definitely the positive one most of the time in the conversations. I'm I'm generally way more pessimistic, but uh, J- Jasmine, I relate to what you're saying about feeling afraid or hesitant to differ with the opinions of someone that you hold in high regard. And I think Paul and I are both relatively non-confrontational people. We're both, in my experience, very much like people pleaser kind of kind of people, and. I think it can be hard to feel like you can challenge someone you respect a lot, but for some reason, the way that we frame our conversations, I I delight in challenging Paul on certain things. And I feel like people can hear that, that banter. And it's like, like you said, Paul, it's more exciting when we disagree on something on the show than if we're both in lockstep. So I think that just by virtue of how we frame our conversations, like the only promise we give to our viewers is to remain curious about something and try to probe an issue. Mm. So, so that's how we kind of get around that sort of hesitancy to challenge people. Because in my, in my everyday life, I'm certainly very much like that, but Paul and I have developed a very special relationship, I think over the course of doing this, this podcast. I love that. Yeah, no, I def, I definitely agree with that. Um, you know, every, I don't think the episodes necessarily get heated, but, but yeah, I feel like we end every episode and we're like, cool, that's good. We're, we're all good. I, I mean, we're never like, I'm never angry with Andy at the end of anything. I don't think our, I don't think our, our confrontations ever get that confrontational on, on the episodes though, but mm. our most good. confrontational conversations happen off air about the most boring, tiny little thing, like the meaning of the phrase, it's all downhill from here or something like that, (laughs) where we will spend like a whole day debating whether that's negative or positive Mm -hmm. and just get like super deep into it. Never like angry or confrontational, but it's almost like more heated than anything we do on the show. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Let's, let's not get into one of those conversations right now. I'll leave you until after the podcast is over. What about something more substantive? Like, can you think of an example of something where you've disagreed, where you felt your conversation really developed the topic because you did disagree? Yeah, no, I can't think of anything either. That is a very good question. (laughs) It's worth examining how our perspectives change over time too. And this is your six year anniversary. So would you say that you have a different perspective on something now than you did when you started? So I think in terms of vegan activism, you know, I, my, my background in terms of vegan activism is coming from doing street activism, playing people videos about animal agriculture and talking about going vegan. And so my mindset for such a long time has been individual one-on-one conversion based change. And I think that 
as we've progressed in our conversations, I have started to realize much more the importance of a system change, even though that's harder to wrap your head around because I know how to talk to somebody and I can change someone's mind on something. That's easy. And I think supply and demand works in this very cut and dry, simple, easy way. Um, and now the more we explore these things, I'm like, ooh, it just really does not work like that. And having people on the show like Connie Spence, for instance, from Liberation 360 and Animal, uh, oh, Agriculture Fairness Alliance, and like learning about agriculture subsidies and just all, all, like all of these things that are like, wow, as vegans, we are like really focusing in on this one specific form of changing the world. And we got to do much, we have to diversify our tactics significantly more than that. Uh, to me, mm -hmm. I have like gone on that journey and my opinions on activism now are vastly different from activism six years ago. You know, the, the movement has always been somewhat uh, troubled by the, the, the question of, of whether pursuing welfare reforms is, uh, you know, is, is counterproductive and whether the only thing to do is to encourage people to be vegan and a lot of debate about whether particular types of reforms, I mean, you're talking about removing subsidies, which certainly doesn't seem like a welfare reform, but I think there has been something of a paralysis in this movement about seeking systemic reforms. People have difficulties in analyzing, is this going to put us forward or is this going to put us back by improving the conditions of, of animals? Have your opinions on that changed or do you just feel that there are ways of systemic advocacy uh, to move forward with that, that really could satisfy anybody. For me personally, I won't I won't certainly won't speak for Andy, but I feel like earlier on in the in the podcast, we were in in the beer vegans, we were I think very critical about, you know, like the the welfare, any sort of welfare change as being not anything that's forward moving, it's either sideways moving or even it's taking a sidestep or even potentially a step back. And I think now I am even if that's not something that I'm going to particularly champion, I'm not like going out of my way to, to say, you know, like, well, you shouldn't be doing this or anything like that. I, I think personally, I don't see like the benefit in me spending my time and energy to tell that other person to stop doing that thing. And I think I'm more, I'm, I'm more okay with when I see some of these like smaller single issue victories, for instance, like Canada goose, banning the fur type type thing i'm going to be like cool like that's that seems to be a good thing i cannot argue that like for that one specific issue that seems to be a good thing so i think i'm i'm a little bit softer in that regard i guess i i feel the same way that you do that uh it's hard to know what is the right way forward and i think we've become maybe a little bit more modest about that but it's still i mean there's still talk of of uh, whether welfare reforms are putting us forward or or putting us back and and i've seen some evidence-based research on what's true and what's not before we you know decide one way or the other such as whether they're actually raising the cost of the product to a to a certain extent now that, especially now that the products have something to compete with. It's just an interesting issue. I think it's had an enormous influence on the movement. And I just, you know, your perspectives mm -hmm. uh, are really helpful to me. Yeah, that's definitely one of the things that's shifted since our henna started. Uh, you know, that was actually, it was before then, maybe 15 years ago, the just, that was the, what divided the movement. 
was whether or not you support welfare reforms. <laughs> and things, the kind of nuanced conversations got more interesting, I think, since then. Like, it's not just about that, but like so many other things have come up in the process. And, and strategically, I think when we started our hen house, I saw it as much more doable to change people's hearts and minds about animals and food. And these days, I, I'm more... I guess, strategic out of desperation than I was <laughs> when we started in the sense that like, I think, you know, food technology is where it's at. And that's partly a reaction to the fact that I don't think that a lot of people will ultimately change their heart in time because we don't have a lot of time left. And so that is one of the, one of the like categories of people I like to highlight on our hen house are food technology folks and scientists, because like, please help us because we, we have to, we, we don't have enough time to get everyone to care about a, a pig. You know what I mean? Kind of going along with this because our hen house does have guests and, and beard vegans very rarely has guests or very infrequently, I would say as you are, thoughts and opinions and all these things change over time, how has that influenced? Well, I mean, you were just kind of saying about like the food technologists and stuff like that, but how has that influenced what types of guests you would have on or maybe what types of guests you wouldn't have on? Like how has that changed over time as your thinking changes? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I'd like to just, can I just start with kind of what hasn't changed? There Mm -hmm. is particularly over this particular issue, the validity of welfare reforms, but among other issues as well. As I mentioned before, there was just so much anger in the movement when we started. And we just set a, a, a line that we still keep to, and we always have, that you are not invited onto our podcast to criticize other animal rights people for their positions on on animal rights. Not that that isn't valid. I think there's a place for that. And I think it's an important topic. It's just not ours. So that was something that I think I would say has not changed. Jasmine, you were going to talk about some things that maybe have changed. Well, I'm not sure we actually agree with this, Marianne, but I I think that we started out a little bit more lifestyle uh, with activism sort of peppered throughout it. And now I think we are, we draw a harder line in the sand with activism specifically. So we don't have that sort of like vegan, you know, interesting vegan person on just because they're an interesting vegan. I think nowadays we focus more on like people who are working in their community or within an organization to create change for animals, full stop. And that is like an unbending bottom line for us, as opposed to, you know, other projects that I'm involved in personally uh, or outside of our hen house are are more about like getting people to have the building blocks to go vegan. Um, Our hen house is for people more specifically who want to get involved in animal activism. So that's what I think has changed a little bit to be a little more focused on that. What about you guys? Like, wh- how would you say it's changed? Do you think that you, that there are topics that you discuss now that you wouldn't have before, or are there places where like, you're going to go there? Whereas, you know, six years ago, you wouldn't have necessarily gone there because it felt too scary. How has it been for you? Well, I definitely think one thing that I'll say one thing, Andy, and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you let you respond. I think definitely we used to 
do this thing more, much more frequently where we would find a particular article and we would be like, we are going to deconstruct this article by this person and like, you know, say that person's name and stuff like that. And we have since for, for a while now, we've moved away from that because we're like, oh, it's kind of just us, you know, attacking this one author almost as opposed to the ideas that they're bringing. And so now when we, when we find it on a, an, a good article that, that, um, is like the impetus for a good discussion. We very quickly say, "Hey, here's this article. It brings up these good points. Let's talk about the broader conversation as a whole instead of like, let's talk about why this one person is wrong." Which is like mm. not. It's just not like super constructive. And also, we've been approached by someone of whom we've talked <laughs> about their article in a uh, unfriendly way. So that like <laughs> in person, this person was like, "Hey, you talked very unfavorably about my article," and we were like, "Ooh, that's this is uncomfortable <laughs> and awkward, and I don't want to." Uh, have this experience again. But yeah, I mean, less so about our nature to be non-confrontational and more so about just, it's a more constructive to have conversations that way rather than just talking about one specific person's opinions. Mm. Yeah, I think that kind of lends itself to that that difference between like the individual change versus like the systemic change and that we don't want our conversations to feel like the end point is we must us and listeners get this one specific person to change their specific view about this specific thing, because ultimately that's just sort of leads to kind of this like, you know, pile on shamey kind of thing. And we find that it's not productive. I will say the one person that did approach us, Paul had pretty good humor about it though, but it did make us go, Oh, people are actually listening to this and they hear what we say about them. So we should probably be more kind (laughs) about how we speak about people. Uh, this I feel like the podcast has definitely softened us in that way, and I I think that's a good thing. Well, that's good to know. I you know I know that you said that it softens you when you hear from guests. It kind of scares me when I do because I remember that people are on the other end of this. Like podcasting is sort of weird. I also write books, and it's very similar to writing books in that like you sort of do it in a silo, and then you forget about the fact that there's anyone on the other end listening or reading. Has that been your experience where like you are not, I mean, even right now, I feel like it's just the four of us talking. It's weird to me to think that people are going to listen to this conversation. You'd think I'd get used to that. In my head, nobody listens to our podcast. And that's sort (laughs) of just, that's just how I have to think about it. And whenever somebody Mm -hmm. that I know in real life is like, oh, I listened to that episode and I really liked it. It's it's like, oh, jarring. Uh, somebody actually listens to this thing. So I feel like that's just sort of how <laughs> I have to have to think about it. But it is scary getting listener feedback that is anything other than overwhelmingly positive. Uh, just because you never know what you're going to get or how people are going to interpret what you say. And I feel like doing this podcast is a real lesson in what did I think I said versus what did somebody else thinks that I said. Um, and and we've certainly had plenty of experiences of people that have, in my opinion, interpreted our words as uncharitably as absolutely possible um, and then had a reaction to it that I have to like say that this is about this person and it's not so much about us. Not that there isn't something for us to learn about this reaction, but people are just projecting their trauma onto you as a content creator at all times. And their trauma response is a big part of that. So uh, it, it is it is a very scary thing for me as well. So when I say it softened me, I guess I just think that it's made me more kind 
in in how I speak about people and realizing that we're all trying our best to make it through this hellish landscape of life. Um, and so that it's more important for me to be kind about how I speak about things. Yeah, I, I guess I, I, I want to ask you too, like, is that is that something that 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 you think about that you're thinking about when you are building your episodes? I guess what work is going into kind of the thought process of creating an episode? This is why mm. we're going to have this person on. This is what we're going to talk about. What's kind of that like? It's not exactly the same because I don't think we put our own opinions out there as much as you do because your your show doesn't often have guests. But uh, I, I would say that it's not so much worry about criticism. Occasionally, there are people we wouldn't have on because I think uh, either we don't we don't really approve of them in some way or afraid other people wouldn't. Uh, th those things usually go together. But in putting together an episode, it's I mean, it's all based on the interview. It's not based on a topic. So it's just a matter of of like just the, the everyday kind of research that everybody does on whether it's on social media or anywhere else, looking for people who are saying interesting things, who who are doing interesting things, who we think have a new perspective, which because you know that can be hard to find after you've done this for a while. Uh, so that's very exciting. Who've written a great book. So it's very much based on on finding people who we think people will want to hear from. Usually, we're you know, we're looking for people who are vegans and, and who have a really broad-based concern on animals. But sometimes, you know, if it's a wildlife issue, somebody has written a fascinating book on a topic, uh, you know, like we, we interviewed some guy and it's a book about beavers. It was so interesting. <laughs> like, and, and we're lesbians. We like beavers a lot. <laughs> oh God. I can't believe you did that. I had oh to God. do it. You can't talk about beavers without oh my talking God. about beavers. Stop it. Me? Just stop now. It was a wonderful interview. That person wasn't it was a wonderful interview yeah. about wonderful animals. Yeah. And I like it's always awkward like to find out whether somebody's vegan, but I'm sure he wasn't, you know. So so there's that. We would much prefer to have people who had a broader perspective on animals, but sometimes we don't. But it's really much more than your show, I think. Very much based on finding interesting people. And then our little commentary in the beginning, which is, you know, is maybe 15 minutes. Uh, we usually look for, sometimes we discuss an issue we think might be controversial, but it's usually based on, we you know, what's happening in the news or what's happening in our own lives. But I would say for you, that's got to be very different that the, because you're really basing your shows around specific issues. Is that right? Like Andy was saying, I do think sometimes I have to really check myself and make sure I'm like making a point like I'm making my points very clearly because like Andy was saying, I, I think because our conversations are off the cuff, we say things and I think we both understand what the other person is saying. And also just because I've known Andy for so long and we know the way that we talk about things that will say something that to us is so clear. And to someone that's listening to it is like, I can't believe they just said that they just said that thing. And so I, I do think like Andy was saying, sometimes we get feedback that we're like, someone is upset that maybe we didn't bring up a specific um, element in a specific issue. And we're like, well, we, we did, we, we think that we brought that up. And so I, I mean, I think it's, it's a been a positive learning experience for me in terms of, getting this crash course in what am I saying versus what is that person hearing? Because I don't think it's necessarily the fault of one person or the other. It's just how communication works. And if I can 
leave this podcast and be just better at communicating, then I think that's definitely a, a positive. The one thing that we've gotten pushback on more than anything else, I mean, not that it's a lot, but it is occasionally, is somebody writing in and saying, I'm really mean to Jasmine. <laughs> are, are they like serious or is no, this just serious. Like a joke? They're very oh, protective. <laughs> Can I just say, first of all, whoever's written in with that, I love you. Thank you. Please protect me from everyone. Um, <laughs> it has happened a lot over the years, to be honest. And But I just want to point out why. Like Marianne's not that mean to me. Okay. You know, we just had that beaver discussion. I started talking about it. And she was like, stop it. You know, like that's kind of just the way she talks. Like it's, she's blunt she's uh you know sarcastic a lot you know but it's kind of what's so great about her what's so charming and i also think that marianne and i like have a particular intimacy in the way we we relate to each other that maybe someone on the other end might not uh, really understand like we don't i mean we were married for uh you know a while and then we were got divorced but the podcast continued i mean we were married to each other then the podcast like kept going. It outlived our marriage. <laughs> and that sort of rapport thing that I was talking about earlier that Marianne and I have, it it stayed somehow, I think. And but like part of the intimacy that you hear when we talk to each other is that like we know each other better than like anyone knows us. And and so we have a way that we talk to one another. And I love Marianne's bite. You know, like I think it's awesome. I think that I wish more people had were able to kind of be forthright. And and I don't think it's mean. I just want to go on the record saying, well, usually I don't think it's mean. Sometimes I do. But most of the time she's just being, I don't know, Marianne. She's funny. She's <laughs> body. I'm just so nice. I think I think I'm so nice. Well, you can be okay. This is another thing that Marianne <laughs> and I have talked about throughout the years. This is very funny. <laughs> People are very intimidated by Marianne, and we we don't really know why, but it's but like it happens a lot. So I think that it has to do with just being a really you know strong-minded introvert. Like you don't say a lot, and then when you do, it's like bam, you know, like, whereas me, like I am now, I just ramble and ramble and ramble and blah, blah, blah. But when Marianne says something, she means it. And it's not really a bending thing. It's kind of like that. I can change my mind. Really? Like what? Well, I'm usually right. So there would be no reason <laughs> to change my mind. <laughs> but I can. On the rare occasions I'm wrong. And, and by the way, the other day, Jasmine told me that the reason people are intimidated by me unnecessarily, I might add, since I never know what I'm doing, uh, is because I have resting bitch face. So I said that. I, that seems mean to me. It's not mean. It's a compliment. <laughs> like, no, okay, wait. Let's, so you guys, I have a question for Paul and Andy. This is, I, I keep kind of going around and around this question in my head. I don't know exactly how to ask it. So it might come out wrong. Sorry in advance if it does, but like, Marianne and I are women, we're lesbians, Marianne's, you know, older than I am. And, and, and so there's a lot of reason for us to take up space, right? Like, I feel like I've been fighting to take up space my whole life. And I'm just wondering if part of the reason that you guys feel like you come to your conversations with like curiosity and softness and not necessarily being authoritative is because you're white dudes. Like, do you feel like if you came to your topics with the amount of like resoluteness that well, resoluteness isn't a word but that's okay I'm not an editor or anything that you would feel like you were being mansplainy or something like can you just talk about your relationship to humility 
I certainly think that if we were not two white straight cis dudes, that we would get an extraordinarily amount more feedback or criticism and critiques than than we do for sure. Then the amount and type of criticisms we get, I think, would be would be vastly different if we were not who we are. And I, I mean, I definitely think about the space that we take up. I think that there is there's obviously a difference between someone taking up like a space at like a VegFest speaking slot where there is a finite resource versus the infinite vast landscape of podcast land. But I do think that this movement is full of very overconfident white dudes that are telling people how it is. And I think that that is a detriment to our movement. And so I think that we strive as much as we can to not be that. Um, So I think that that's definitely a huge part of why we approach conversations the way that we do. And I think maybe 20% of that is also just the fact that I just wish more people would approach conversations like that. Um, I wish that our movement was full of curious people that were trying to figure things out as opposed to people that learned a talking point and now feel like they know everything there is to know about something. So, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm constantly asking myself, should we, should we even be doing this? Should we be taking up any space and how should we be talking about things? And, you know, we try to make sure that we stay in our lane as much as we can. There's obviously certain topics that we feel like we have a strong opinion about, but we're like, we don't need to be the ones that are expressing this particular opinion. Can we find somebody who is more closely related, who is directly impacted by XYZ and get them on the show instead? And those are usually the episodes where there is like, here's a definitive position on something that you should take seriously. Mm-hmm. I can relate to that. I can relate to that with the the other media making I do as a as as an editor at Veg News, for example, where like maybe Veg News doesn't want to take a particular stance on something, but like we could highlight someone who is taking that stance, you know, in a way that would be you know more appropriate and also better articulated. So I can relate to that. I just think if I didn't make this clear when I asked you your this question that you guys do it really well. And like, I certainly wish more people had that humility and that curiosity that you do. I think it's one of the reasons why people love the bearded vegans, because they actually get to think through topics in real time with you. And they won't necessarily end the episode knowing 100% what they feel about something, but they'll keep thinking about it for, you know, days or weeks afterwards. Can I ask you a question, kind of going back to that, the banter between you and and Marianne, like, do you want people to come to your show for you and like the chemistry mm-hmm. that you have? Because I feel like a lot of people come to our show for that because the show is in many ways about us, whereas you are highlighting people. So yeah. I feel like there's almost a, there's a, a, a very big difference between us taking up space with our opinions versus you two being curators of interviews of people that you're bringing on. Like how much of yourself do you desire to be in the show? Mm -hmm. How much do you want listeners to, to crave learning about you two versus the activists that you have on? That's a really great question, Andy. I I think that undoubtedly our hen house is driven by Marianne and I, in the sense that people do feel like they know us really well uh, at this point. I think having us pepper our perspectives throughout the episodes allows people to know where we would stand on something. So if we have a guest on that we completely disagree with about something, 
it is very likely that the vast majority of our listeners will already know where we stand on it as we're interviewing them. I think the friendship that people feel with us, which is probably the same exact thing that they feel with you guys, is what keeps them coming back because they hopefully trust us. There's a, a, a loyalty that we have to one another. I feel like we have a very strong loyalty to our listeners too. I mean, for, we've never we've never stopped. We've never t- taken a week off. You know, like we have this this insane loyalty to, to our listeners. We we really care about them. We we put in place these new programs when lockdown started for COVID. Like we started, we met with our flock, which is our you know, our version of your Patreon. So our more, you know, our subscribers who pay, we met with them every single week on Zoom for a year. We developed a very strong rapport with them. We really got to know each other. They got to know one another too. After lockdown ended, we continued this as a flock perk. Uh, So it's a monthly, it's a monthly gathering now, but there is a very strong feeling. We all really care about each other. And so I do think people come to our show because they want to check in with, with us and they want to, they're interested in who we are bringing into the Arjenos sphere that week because they trust that we have properly vetted them. And so hopefully that answers that question. And I, I think that that is what people come to podcasts for, or at least one of the things. Is I, I enjoy listening to podcasts in which I feel like the I have a sort of personal connection to the host, that I kind of know who they are, that I kind of, you know, enjoy the way they talk. It's an interesting medium. And I mean, I guess all media involves some si- sort of personal connection to the people you're, whose media you're consuming, but I don't think it's anything like podcasting. I mean, that doesn't come that naturally to me. I'm naturally a pretty guarded person, but I've always thought that that's a hugely important part. Sharing yourself a bit is a hugely important part of why people go listen to podcasts. Do you find that that kind of weekly, the, the need to be there, be present for releasing a weekly episode, plus maybe some of the extra stuff, is it like... How do you prevent that burnout from happening, whether physically from all the time or even emotionally? Because like you said, you need to like be there and be available and and give yourself to this podcast. Well, we'll answer that if you guys also answer it, because I'm curious your perspective on that, too. But how do we do that? Uh, Well, first, sometimes it is a deadline and that's it. Sometimes it's just like. We have a team, you know, we have Jen Riley, who's our director of operations. She organizes everything for us and and keeps everything going. We have Eric uh, Montgomery from the Podcast Haven, who's our editor. We have Jocelyn Martinez, who's our researcher and our social media person. I feel like having a team helps us stay accountable because they're keeping it going and we have to meet them where they're at. And so on one hand, it's that sort of deadline thing and that, and that accountability thing uh, that occasionally that is all that we, that is the reason why we keep going. Cause there's Jen put it an interview in my calendar. I have an interview that day, but a lot of times on a more thousand foot high view, I am just genuinely 
honored beyond words to be able to do this. Like I, I am, I am tickled. I am beside myself. Like I love doing this and it, it, it is never even in my head that we wouldn't, you know, like I can't even imagine that. I can't even imagine what the exit strategy would be because I get to learn. And I'm sure you guys can relate to this. I get to learn in real time when our guests, you know, some of whom I have admired forever, decide that they will come on our show and talk to us about something that I am really wanting to know about. So why would it ever be something I dreaded? You know? (laughs) I I mean, I would just say it. I feel exactly the same way, even though, you know, like, sure, sometimes I, oh my God, I have an interview today, but they're always so good. The people, it's always, because we're so interview driven, we constantly get to talk to new people, which is a, a real driver. But the real reason that I have done it every week for the past 12, almost 12 years is because of Jasmine. Jasmine is the most driven person on the face of the earth. I would never have, have done this. Like she, she just, she is a person who gets it done. I feel that exact same way about Andy. <laughs> like I feel that, that Jasmine, like the accountability that you were talking about, I definitely feel like Andy helps me, helps keep me accountable for all this. Um, I think, you know, sometimes there have been parts of my, well, I'll say this too, that the Bearded Vegans is uh, for Andy, I think as well, this is like the longest I've ever done something and stuck with something like in my entire life, any sort of like hobby that I've had or job up to this point, job that I've had, I've done the podcast longer than those things, any relationship that I've had. So I think it's, it's like a really important part of my life. I think there are times I, I I have this kind of personality where sometimes I'll take on I take on too many things and I try to like jam pack my schedule and like okay I can do this thing then and this thing then and it certainly makes uh, <laughs> it certainly makes doing the beard vegans stressful at times because it's like okay we I have this episode looming every single week and maybe as it's getting closer and closer to the date that we need to have it done by we don't even know what we're going to talk about at this point so it can definitely get stressful and I think you know. I've I'm I'm fortunate to have a relationship with Andy where I can at those times I can express to Andy that I'm feeling overwhelmed with these things and we've worked out ways the the in addition to the podcast evolving naturally in terms of what we're talking about it's also evolved in ways that make it better for us in our personal lives and and maybe give us more space give us more personal time if we need it in in those moments take take like quote unquote breaks at times where we're just going to do movie reviews or something, something that doesn't require us to have to do research beforehand and come up with, with ideas. We can just watch a movie and talk about it. Those are kind of like our, our break episodes or even just replaying older episodes. So yeah, I'm fortunate to have Andy who's willing to, you know, work with me and when I'm feeling overwhelmed and, and we can work together when he's feeling overwhelmed to kind of figure out how we can restructure the podcast, maybe permanently or maybe just for the next few episodes in a way that can kind of um, help to prevent that that sort of burnout. Yeah, we've had a few check-in moments over the years. And personally, I love hearing podcasts talk about their process. So often when a check-in happens, you'll hear about it on the show. Sometimes it, it doesn't, but that where we're just like, this is this is a lot that we have to get done or there's like an unequal labor balance or something that's just preventing us from feeling like this is sustainable. Um, and for us, yeah, we have our, we have our patrons, 
But in general, it's kind of a weird thing because we don't have a boss. We don't have somebody that's like, you have to get this done. It's just the thing that we just do. And so having those check-ins lets us be more sustainable. And we talk about, you know, stripping the news section out of the show, stop talking about food so often and things like that, that shorten the show, but ultimately like strengthen it because it gives us more time to talk about a big episode. And so that ability to sit down with Paul and say, this isn't working. We need to change this thing. We need to figure this thing out. Um, I think is really valuable and having that communication that we do have has just been just so absolutely important. And we've only missed at this point one week uh, in, the, in our whole like six year run. And even then we still put out something. It just wasn't a standard episode. It was replaying an interview that I had done. Uh, I had been interviewed. So uh, those are the things that like keep it sustainable. And I think we're still have a lot more fine tuning to do um, to, to that point. But I think that having someone that I trust where we can work through it is such a joy. And ultimately what makes it worth doing is I, no matter how bad my day is and no matter how stressful it is to put together an episode, I know that when we hit record by the end of that, I'm going to be in the best mood. It happens without fail when I'm, when I'm entering in and I'm like, this is gonna be the worst episode ever. I hate it. And Paul just turns me right around. So that's one of the big things that keeps it going. Yeah. I I think because Andy, like before uh, coronavirus, because Andy was, you know, in living in his van, traveling from VegFest to VegFest, I would rarely get to actually see Andy. I mean, I still rarely get to see him because of coronavirus now, but I rarely got to see Andy. And so I think one of the, I know I've said this on the podcast. We both said this on the podcast many times before, but I honestly, one of the best parts of the podcast is the fact that Andy and I get to like maintain a very close relationship, a very close friendship when honestly, it's like, how often would we be talking if we didn't have to almost every single day be in communication with something about the podcast? And, you know, we talk about the podcast almost every, like every other day or something like that. But then because of that, we're also talking about other things and talking about more like fun things as well. And so it's like, Andy is truly my best friend. And that's probably because of the podcast. We'd still be, I hope we would be good friends, even if this podcast never existed, but definitely not, not as close as we are. Have you guys ever been married to each other? We have not. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. We have The not. night's still young. And, and <laughs> can I ask about that? Because I remember as a listener, there was a time where, you know, I wasn't listening to like every single episode, but there was a time when I was like, something's different. Oh. Something has changed on this show. And I did a little detective oh. work and kind of like put the pieces together. Mm-hmm. Can I ask yes. like what that experience was like? You can ask. Uh, well, I have, can Marianne, ask why don't you take some. it? I actually have uh, Pop- something possibly to add not all. when you're done, but I'd, I'd love to hear what you say. Well, I don't know if I'd love to hear what you'd say, but go for it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it, I mean, it was, diff- it was very difficult. Like there was, you know, I won't go into details, but there was a lot of emotion. You know, it was a divorce. That's what happens. But we just didn't want to stop doing our hen house. And as I think, is a little bit unusual, not completely unusual. We did manage to salvage a very close friendship out of that. Uh, it took some time, though. We did announce it on the podcast, but we announced it once. And you must have missed that episode, uh, Andy. So go back and, and try to catch that one. And then we just did the podcast differently. We did. Uh, we had been doing interviews together prior to that, and we started doing interviews separately 
And we actually started doing almost everything separately for a while until things calmed down. And then, and then gradually we felt comfortable doing it together again. It was, it was an interesting emotional experience. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. It was really, there, it, it was difficult. You know, there are a couple of things in our lives that we, that we did feel we should tell our listeners, but we didn't feel it. We wanted to go into a lot of detail. That was one of them. Another one was when our dog Rose died. Um, we announced it, but we just couldn't talk about it. It was too hard. So we announced it and then moved on. Um, but I, I actually just thought of something, Andy, that I wanted. It sort of bridges that question with another question we were talking about earlier. This actually is a, it, it's kind of a sore spot for me. Uh, but I appreciate the intention. But because people knew us so well, or felt like they knew us so well, when it's when it started to get out that we were not together anymore, when we announced it, I got like a significant amount of emails from people expressing their opinion about that and how that they really want us to stay together. And maybe a couple of people said the podcast is just not the same. They took it very personally. And I didn't you know, get any of the, I don't think you even told me about them. Really? I don't get any of those emails. Huh. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. I did. I got yeah. like at least 10, you know, which I, maybe I'm saying that's significant because it feels significant. And, you know, it was, it was very hard. It was like breaking it to people over and over again. That's how it felt. It felt like, you know, I, I, I'm of the generation where like my whole, all, you know, my, my parents' generation were the ones that all got divorced. So my parents got divorced multiple times, but before I was 11, it was very traumatic for me as a child. And, and I remember the conversations where like, I was sat down and told we're not going to be together anymore. Like, it happened multiple times. And, and it felt like I was doing that with our listeners or our flock members, you know, anytime I had to address something and when I got those emails, they like, I, I just don't think sometimes that people realize you're a human being, you know, like divorce is horrible. Like, I can't believe that my parents did it so many times. <laughs> like it, it's, it's very, very painful and very personal. And, and Marianne and I had this other element of like, uh, you know, being on the air every week and, you know, maybe it's a small group of people, relatively speaking, it's our listeners, it's our, it's animal rights activists, but like we, it was very important to us that our handouts continue. And I'm not sure we navigated through it perfectly on the air, but I think we did a pretty good job, all things considered. And, you know, Marianne continuing to do this like i can't imagine our hen house ever without marianne so like our hen house continuing now is it, it's like everything to me and it's been many years and i think that our hen house has become a sort of more mature version of what it used to be and uh i still think the world of her brain so that's my answer <laughs> I know you've gone through a number of hardships I've heard you talk about on the show and still managed to put out that weekly show. Has it ever crossed your mind been like, we could take a week off and people would understand? Or what is the motivation behind that? Yeah. Well, OCD. <laughs> but in addition to OCD, uh, you actually did bring something up. You said that there was a week that you put an interview up of you. There were a few times not recently, but there were a few times when we did best of episodes. So it's cheating a little bit for me to say that we went up every week. They were newly packaged episodes uh, and we used to do them. We probably did them four times a year for a while. Uh, so 
you know, I also remember Andy, I remember being when my grandmother died, which was like such a giant thing that happened in my life. And I remember we were recording. I remember being in her assisted living facility. She was like toward the end, you know, we knew that we were watching her die. We, we went every day at that point. And we sat in the corner. Do you remember this, Marianne? We sat in the yes, corner of, of the lobby in the assisted living facility with our microphones. And we like, we had to keep it kind of quiet because like there were all these old people around and we recorded the show. And I think in a way it was an anchor for me. You know, it was like a normal thing. Um, and then at that time I, I was like, grandma's going to die soon. And I remember staying up all night this was when I was still doing the editing myself. I, w- I stayed up all night and I pieced together every segment she had ever been on because she used to be a consultant <laughs> for the show and like a film critic and she was so cute. And I put it all together and I, episode 201, Grandma. And as soon as she died, I aired it and it was just my grandma. So to answer your question, uh, I, I do wish we had seasons. I feel like seasons in podcasts is a fairly new thing. Like our friend Evie, you know, Ivana Lynch at Chick Peeps, you know, they have a season and at Kinder Beauty, where I also work, I'm the VP of editorial there. We're putting together a podcast and we're doing just five episode seasons. Like it feels like bliss to me to think that. So I suggested to Marianne, we should make like 12 years our season and then just take a break. <laughs> and then like, we'll do our next season, season two of our hen house. But anyway, what about you guys? You seem to be just about as relentless as I am about that consistency? How does that impact your life? I think like, you know, when you were talking about the, the experience with your grandma, I think, and, and recording at that time, I think uh, for me, it's like some, sometimes if I, if I'm going through something, sometimes it's like, I need the space and I'll tell Andy, like, I don't think I can record this week or something like that. And we figure out something else, but other time and often a lot of times it's like, I know that recording the podcast will be that anchor that you were talking about. It's this consistent thing that has been in my life for so long and I can rely on it and I can depend on it and depend on Andy. And so it's like, it's, it's, it's plays an interesting role where, you know, um, depending on, and I don't know exactly what it is. I can't put a finger on it, but in some situations it's like, I need to, you know, this week or these next few days, I can't record today. And other times it's like, please, can we record to kind of help me get through this thing that's unrelated to the podcast? I also just think that there's kind of a momentum thing that goes along with that. And that I see so many podcasts that, you know, they're a couple months in and then they don't release the, that week and then they release something. And then that like three weeks goes by until the next one. And I feel like it's just so easy to just not do it one week, right? So easy to not do something. And so I also think that I kind of worry that if we just take time off that, it'll be so easy to just not keep doing it, you know? And so I just, I just feel like having that deadline of making sure we have to record every week by a certain time Mm -hmm. just is like, I don't want to use the word sustainable because it it leads to burnout for sure. But you know, it's just sort of a thing that's just like a perpetual motion machine that keeps going just by virtue of we must get this done somehow, even if it means scanning Google news minutes before we're supposed to record, trying to figure something to talk about. Oh, that's so, that's awesome. <laughs> that's funny because I don't know. Oh, this sounds so familiar. You, Andy, you really, you and Jasmine are the same person. Totally the same person. And totally the, totally the looking at the news like, like five minutes before you're going to record say, what are we going to talk about? 
That's like that. I I actually said to Marianne when we were preparing for this, I was like, "There's a big difference between bearded vegans and our henhouse because yes, we prepare a lot for the interviews, and and we have you know a whole system for that. It starts with research that Jocelyn does, and Marianne does the questions, and you know it's this machine. But the the top of the show, like we're like, okay, got to record one thirty, okay, one thirty, and then Marianne currently lives upstairs in for me in this duplex that we're in, and I'm like. Okay, it's one thirty, Marianne. Can I have fifteen minutes? She's like, fine, 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 fine. So two o'clock comes along or whatever, two fifteen, and I go upstairs. Okay, let's record, let's record, let's record. She's like, what are we going to talk about? We have nothing to talk about. And I'll start. I'll open my calendar, and I'm like, well, I gave a talk at Animal Outlook last week. She's like, that's boring. No, you know, and we'll we'll open Veg News to go through the news. Like, okay, Neiman Marcus dropped fur. Let's talk about that. You know, like, what are we going to say? It's boring. Like, we've already covered this a billion times. Everyone knows it. Oh, I tried a new pizza place. Should we talk about that? No, nobody cares that you ate pizza. You know, like that's kind of what it's like. And then we're like exasperated. And sometimes we start hysterically crying because, I mean, did I say crying? I meant laughing. (laughs) Sort of like crying. (laughs) And um, it's very close. And then we'll just record and then it's fine. Like it comes out good. I it's think. very close but, to crying. Uh, I'm glad to know. I said the difference between bearded vegans and our hen house is they prepare like far in advance and we just wing it. So you saying that you scan the headlines, it makes me so happy. It's all a mirage. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we kind of go in waves where there'll be a handful of episodes where we're like, boom next two months look at that we have the topic for every single episodes but then there will be waves where it's like every week we are like oh god what are we going to talk about this week so it's certainly Does it limit you though because you're talking about okay so you're talking about topics so do you <laughs> feel like you can't i mean how does that work because do you feel like you can't repeat a topic because you already covered it but what if you have a different I mean, I know you talked about that a little bit earlier about how you might play an older episode and then talk about how that's shifted. But I do feel like we have it way easier in that we have a guest every week so we can kind of hide behind what they're talking about. How does it work for you? I would say that we we know we're going to repeat things. And I also think that I try to keep in mind that most people haven't listened from episode one. And just the way it goes for people, unless we're someone's absolute favorite podcast, they're probably not catching every episode. Maybe they listen, you know, uh, every week for a couple of months and they dip out for a couple of months and then they come back in. So I try to keep that in mind and not feel too bad about repeating something. But we try not to repeat something unless we have a new take on it or it's a new version of a specific conversation. And Sometimes the fact that we're repeating something is the conversation. Like we recently did an episode about the the vegan Kit Kat coming from Nestle. And it wasn't about that. It wasn't the same conversation about supporting big corporations or perils of capitalism or anything that we have had many times before or the ethics of chocolate. It was about us feeling just so exasperated at the fact that this is the conversation we were probably supposed to be having this week. And part of it is a little bit self-indulgent because we're like, why haven't we fixed this problem yet (laughs) as a podcast? Somehow we haven't solved this issue. But it was kind of us reflecting on the fact that we've just had this conversation so many times. And how do we break out of that depression spiral that happens of just seeing the same issue pop up over and over and over again in the vegan movement? Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure that you've probably seen that way more being having been vegan and doing your podcast for longer Um, So I think that we try to approach things from a new and novel way. 
And if we can't do that, we won't talk about it. Or sometimes it'll become like a bonus thing on our Patreon. We're like, we don't really want to talk about this. We know you want to hear it, or we think it's fun to talk about, but we just know it's not that new, but people still want to hear us talking about the latest impossible Whopper debacle or whatever. (laughs) So we'll kind of record that for the people that really, really are able to support the podcast and love it on the Patreon. So uh, I I hope that covers it. I just want to add, I feel like one of my biggest pet peeves with like for Andy and myself, that something that we do that I, that I'd absolutely every time we do it and we do it constantly, I'm like, I, I cringe a little bit is we are constantly saying, well, I know we've talked about this before or like, and I know you've heard us talk about this before. And it's like this balance between the fact that we don't really want to have the same discussion again, but also like Andy was saying, most of the people that are listening to that episode have not heard us talk about this, this thing before. Right. And so that's how, that's our kind of like easy way to get out of it is to just say like, you basically, it's just saying like, Hey, we've talked about this and we'll try to, usually we'll try to like give the episode maybe 1% of people for whom we say that to actually go back and listen to that episode. But yeah, it's kind of like our way of getting out of that is to just say like, yeah. well, we talked about this before in this episode, so we're not going to talk about that again, but blah, 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 blah. I hate that we do it so much because, because I know if I was listening, yeah. I'd be like, this doesn't help me at all. <laughs> You're just <laughs> telling me to go listen to a different podcast. Well, we try to think about our show as an evolving conversation. And so it's always building on the previous thing. But obviously, there's limitations to that. Mm-hmm. But like for, for our hen house, like you said, you kind of get out of it a little bit easier because you're bringing guests on. But having done the show for so long, are there mm-hmm. things that just bore you? Are there things that you're like, I'm so done with interviewing someone about XYZ? Like, mm-hmm. And how do you navigate that if it does happen? What do you think, Marianne? That's yeah. I I mean, I'm almost tempted to say no, but that sounds like really obnoxious. Like there must be some things there's, you know. But the the other side of that coin is that sometimes interviews are not good. Right. Like you know, you, you book somebody, you interview them, and and you have hopes for it, and you want it to be new. Sometimes you know there are a lot of people, especially in like perhaps more senior people within organizations. They are all talking points. They are. Mm-hmm. You know, we tell them our audience is vegan, like they they get it that, you know, you don't have to explain that to them. They get on, they start explaining why you should be vegan. Like it's just so some interviews I feel don't don't work. Uh, you know, we're not ap- able to crack through that uh, talking point. Yeah, that's disappointing. Yeah. And, you know, it's just hard to predict that ahead of time. Some interviews are with somebody because we don't really have a whole lot of opportunity because the people we interview are not necessarily well known. They haven't necessarily been interviewed on 15 podcasts before. We can't really, you know, we can research them, but there's a limit to how much you could research somebody. We have to just take a chance that they're going to be an interesting speaker, that they're going to be willing to put themselves out there. Uh, and, and sometimes it really, really works with people you have no hope for. And sometimes you think you've gotten somebody great and it's just like, blah, blah, blah. So that's kind of, kind of our side of that coin. Um, not so much the topic based on the topic, but based on the interviews. On that note, like when you're saying you had this interview, you thought was going to be great. And the person was like, oh God, this is not, this is not a good interview. Mm -hmm. When after the interview or after maybe like after you get the edit, after you listen to it, has there ever been a time where you're like, I really don't want to put this out, but you put it out or that you just don't put the the episode out? How do you handle that situation? Name names. (laughs) Well, there's beep and there was beep. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> you know, honestly, we usually air it uh, and we kind of grit our teeth and we, we will, when we're going to record tots, which is what we call top of the show, we will say to each other, we have to make tots really good. Like we have yeah. to put something in it that's particularly compelling or gritty. Whereas if like there's an interview that's really carrying the show, we might not put too much in tots. We have edited things down. Like if someone says, it hasn't happened that often. And, you know, but if someone says something that's just like, we don't feel as responsible to air something about, uh, let's say anti-vax or something, like maybe we will remove that section, which makes it sound like we are overly, that we're overly editing. And we don't, we almost never edit, to be honest. We might edit occasionally. There was someone recently who brought up a very controversial uh, organization that, well, not organization, like a very controversial sanctuary, I'll say. And we just didn't feel like, we didn't feel like opening that Pandora's box. So we just removed that section, which might be shitty of us. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but. Yeah, we don't, we don't often uh, just can. And I mean, in the first place, it would be hard to have the bandwidth to can interviews that you don't yeah. like, but we just don't. I mean, we invited this person on, they came on in good faith. That, you know, and they said what they they had to say. And the other right. thing is, is that we sometimes have listen, have interviews we hate and then we get right. great feedback on them. Yes. You never know. You know, somebody's going to like it. Uh, so, you know, my opinion of things isn't always or even often other people's opinions of things. So I'm not sure it would be worth doing that. But we do enough research that it can generally be avoided. And actually, I do want to say something. So you mentioned, Marianne, that we have like people who are senior at organizations come on a lot. Well, this is a little preliminary to mention this, but I feel like mentioning it anyway. Marianne had this great idea. Do you want to say what it is? No, you can say it. We want to have a new kind of uh, regular segment where we're talking to people who just started working for organizations like you know, new, brand new employees at, at some of the animal protection organizations, because we think that a lot of the more senior people, like they've been on our show already, maybe a few times, they've been on everyone else's show. They're the spokesperson, but like, there are these like new, interesting people who come and maybe they're doing some of the more background work at, at an organization, but they have the passion, they have the skill, they have the curiosity, they still have the humility. They're not all talking points yet. And we really want to capture that. So I'm pretty excited about that. That's a really awesome idea. I, I, I guess my one question would be, are you going to like release their names? Because do you think they would be hesitant to say anything bad about their company if like mm. they were... They just joined. Yeah, I think that's something we just have to face. Yeah, that almost everybody who you interview is editing themselves to some extent, yeah. and and we'll try to get people who are recent enough hires that they don't hate the place yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it is a good point that we. It takes I just, time. It takes we just time. talked about we just talked about the institutional animal protection movement, but we have a lot of people on who are not in the animal protection movement or like whatever that means. Like they don't work for Mercy for Animals or Animal Outlook or PETA or, or you know, whatever. Like they, they don't have a job. Almost everybody we have on. Right. Almost everybody we have on is doesn't fit into that right. description. Yeah. yeah, almost everyone. Actually, that's one of the reasons we decided to do this because uh, we felt like it was an aspect of the movement that we were missing that we hadn't really interviewed the people who work at animal protection organizations, but you know at a lower level, and uh, we 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 haven't interviewed them a lot, and those are some of the most passionate people around. No, that's awesome. 
we'll get press releases sometimes, you know, I'm sure you guys do too. We'll get press releases from organizations that want to have their same executive director come on to talk about the the same campaign they've been working on for five years that we interviewed them about five years ago. And they'll, they'll, you know, want to be, they'll want to be a guest and we discuss it. And it's like, yeah, I really like that person. I really like what they're doing, but no, we're not a PR. Let me just say, and this is actually important to say, we are not a PR firm for the animal rights movement. And sometimes that's how we're seen, I think. And I totally get it. There's, it's very hard to get media. It's very hard to get media around animal rights, but like, we don't exist just to put your, just to put your talking points out there. And so we have to say no a lot. I was going to say, you know, how often are you getting requests for people to be on your podcast that clearly have like never listened to your podcast before? Oh my God. (laughs) All the time. Or, or, Or someone will be, will be pitched someone who's been on the show twice. And it's, you know, like I have worked in PR and you got to take a minute to like search the site to see if they've been on before. Like if I'm on the other end of a press release or an email from someone pitching a guest and it starts with like, Hey Jasmine, I really loved last week when you were talking to Omawale about, uh, you know, the black veg fest. I, I, I'm going to clear my schedule to make sure to attend. Oh, and by the way, since we're talking about your podcast, I, I think I have someone who would be interesting for you. You don't seem to cover the topic of blah, blah, blah very often. As opposed to, uh, you know, hey, Jasmine, uh, I'd like to introduce you to Ingrid Newkirk. She is the founder of PETA. PETA is, a, you know, and <laughs> this is, like, she's, you're making this one up. PETA has not I made done it up. I no, just no, want no, to make I made it clear. Yeah, and also, I love Ingrid Newkirk, and she's been on our NS, <laughs> and then I died. Like, I am, I'm, I really look up to her a lot. Anyhow, the point is that, yes, it happens constantly. Do you guys get that too? Are you on the other end of emails like that? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, like people seem to email us thinking that we have very many guests on, we have very few guests on. And it's kind of like, you know, they'll say things like loved the show loved when you talked about insert last week's topic from like the name (laughs) of the episode. (laughs) Like we think you'd love to have this person on that's talking about like gut health. And we're like, this is right. Oh my God. Totally. (laughs) So the gut health people find us too. (laughs) Yeah, we've been offered the exclusive uh, interview with like the the world's foremost expert in the mucus free diet, and we're like, what is <laughs> happening here? Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it, oh and it's it's like, yeah, I mean, I guess you know what? If I if if I was that person, why not? Like, what what does it hurt them to to mass send out emails? Yeah, totally. I got to tell you, when Fabulous Vegan came out last December, uh, I was working with this this PR these PR folks from the publisher, and they sent me a list of vegan media that they can reach out to, and there were like three people on it, and our hen house was one of them. Oh my god! <laughs> I was like, did you stop for a second? Like, how do you have a job? <laughs> it was so weird. But anyway. Um, yeah. Well, okay. I, there's something I want to go back to before we before we go into our, our bonus content. You've mentioned your Patreon a little bit. Uh, I, I'd love to just talk about the the sort of uh, you know elephant in the room. Although that's oppressive to the elephant. Why is the elephant in a room instead of in a, in in the wild? So anyway, uh, forgive the oppressive statement. Let's talk about fundraising because it can be weird. It can be awkward and. I think it's super cool that you guys do Patreon. That didn't exist when we started. So we have a different setup 
But I'd love it if you could tell me a little bit about uh, what Patreon is like for you guys to work with and how you do fundraising. When we first started, we had a brief conversation about the possibility of having ads and sponsors on the show. And we both, or I, I was like, I'm not opposed to it, but I want nothing to do with making that happen <laughs> necessarily. And so very quickly, we were like, let's just not do that. It'll bog down the show. We, we don't want that. And for a long time, we were able to just do our thing without that. Um, and then the reason we ended up considering the Patreon is because we wanted to get our episodes transcribed. You know, we're like, if we think what we have to say is important, we should make it as accessible as possible and reduce barriers as much as we can. And turns out getting transcriptions is very expensive, especially if you're a weekly show with zero income. So we started the Patreon. And I think both of us, I know I can certainly say myself, was just like, how dare I ask anybody for money for this thing? Like, we are doing this for altruistic reasons and... There, there's no way that we should take up money, especially, you know, that thing that, you know, we're, we're two straight white guys in a movement and we straight white guys get so many resources. How dare we ask people for money? Um, but then it was kind of like, yeah, what is the worst that can happen? People don't have to give us money. We can explain what we're trying to do and then they can give it to us or not. And so we, we, we went that route and I'm really glad that we did because one, now we're transcribing almost every episode a month. We sort of have different thresholds for hitting a certain number per month. And we've also been able to use that money to, uh, you know, alleviate the stress of if a microphone breaks and we need to buy a new one or just like the things that make it sustainable paying bills to uh, make sure we can do the podcast. And so no longer is the podcast a hardship financially, at least, so I would say overall, it's been a really great experience to do the Patreon because it alleviates the financial burden, but it also, I think, brings us closer to a lot of listeners. Mm. Uh, not that financial support is everything, but the fact that there are people who are willing to give us some a few dollars every month because they believe in what we're doing, they, they like our content, they think it's important, is sort of a confidence booster. Mm -hmm. And also just connecting with people within the Patreon interface, you know, it's a whole social media feed, essentially, uh, has been really rewarding. And it also just is a nice place to go where you can be pretty sure that people are going to give you the benefit of the doubt if you mess up on something. Mm -hmm. And so it's nice to have that kind of warm, welcoming hug that is the Patreon community that we have cultivated there. That's great. It's the Patreon has changed the game. And also, I think that since podcasting has really started to get more and more popular, it it is expected that people would sometimes support a podcast they listen to regularly, or even Patreon in Patreon's case, like an activist that you are a fan of or something like I will, I definitely support some Patreons because I believe in the person's work and it's just this small way for me to make a difference. And then as a subscriber, as a donor, I feel invested in what they're doing. And so it's actually an honor for me to be a Patreon subscriber. So hopefully the fact that that landscape has changed, has shifted your, any awkwardness you feel about asking for money. And we do these bonus episodes because we're like, we can't ask for money without giving somebody something in return. And I, I think people definitely appreciate them. It's a nice perk. But I've realized over the course of doing this that 
people would still be financially supporting us if we gave them nothing additional in advance. People just like what we do and they want mm-hmm. to support it. And that's how I am with other activists. I, I back several or we back as a podcast several uh, through the Beard Vegans Patreon. And I don't do it because I'm expecting something. I do it because, oh, this person does great work. I want them to continue to do great work and I can help them do that by giving them five bucks a month or whatever it is. <laughs> and and I want to ask, since our hen house was pre Patreon, like mm-hmm. when did, when did you start the flock? How, how, how far into the podcast did you start that? And what's kind of like, wh- what was your thinking behind all that? Well, our hen house is a nonprofit, which is a bit offbeat. Uh, I think that we, for a while that we really struggled with that. I think there was a long period of time where I wondered if that was the right choice for us, because when you're a nonprofit, it comes with a lot of paperwork. It comes with, you have to have a board of directors, you have to have meetings, you have to be on mission. And of course, our henhouse has other programs as well. Like our henhouse is sort of the umbrella organization. We have our henhouse, the podcast. We also have the animal law podcast that Marianne's been hosting for years, which is in its own right, a phenomenal podcast that is unlike anything else that exists. And we have also played with some other programs in the past too. We had a TV show for a while. We had an ebook publishing arm for a while. We had an online magazine, but the thing that stuck the most was podcasting because it was something that we felt we were, we, we were filling a void and with having. We, 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 we also started with a daily blog. You don't even remember that blogs existed. That was part of it. That was kind of. The centerpiece of our henhouse was the blog. It was a lot of work. Well, it was a lot of and work, blogs, but I'm, what are they? But the, and they the whole point of the blog was to create replicable activism ideas. So basically, it would be like a h- highlighting what someone's doing, and then being like, "Here's how you could do it too." So we were trying to really put it in everyone's hands, like the feel to, so that they could feel emboldened. The podcast is what stuck, and we definitely didn't start with the flock. We we did need donations, of course, because we were a nonprofit, so we were working with a budget. I was a full-time employee at the time at our head house as the executive director, so I was the only full-time employee, and it took a lot of work to get all this up. It took a lot of work to write grants, grant proposals. It took a lot of work to you know, make sure that we were we had the correct bylaws for the board and, and the organization, that we were filing our, our 990s that I was working with the accountant and all of that boring stuff that I never wanted to do. Uh, so for a long time, especially once Patreon started, I wished that we had gone in that direction. But things have shifted and I'm really glad we're a nonprofit at this point because of grants and because of the fact that NPR and PBS are both nonprofits. So it's a similar model. And I would say maybe f- I'm guessing that it was like, maybe seven years ago or so-ish, we started The Flock, but we didn't really offer any bonus content at the time. And then within the last five years or so, we started to offer bonus content for The Flock. And then we really fleshed out what what it meant to be a Flock member. We offer bonus content. We do the monthly calls. We have a private Facebook group. I send videos to The Flock members every week individual videos. So I'll have like a chunk of people each week that I'll send them a video. And we also have some other perks that I think I'm forgetting right now. But anyway, uh, it's been amazing. Like I love having it. When I did my book tour for my first book in 2016, my memoir, Always Too Much and Never Enough, I did it like a 65 city book tour. And 
I had flock members and vegans and podcast listeners in every audience peppering the audience. And it just felt wonderful. Uh, so I'm sure Andy, you probably feel like that when you're touring around with Compassion Co. and you're meeting people who listen to your podcast and they feel like they're meeting a rock star and and you're like, oh my God, you're so awesome. Buy a t-shirt. <laughs> well, well, Andy is a rock star. So <laughs> yes, he is a rock star. I get excited when I see Andy. I saw Andy. Andy, I saw you at the Vegan Street Fair in LA, like kind of right before COVID, I feel like. Yeah, I feel like we were talking about potentially getting dinner together and then the world shut down. So did not happen. That's right. That's true. But I I always get so excited when I see you. And uh, I, I can imagine that it's the same for your listeners too. Uh, so anyway, I hope maybe that answered your question. So I feel like and on the RNL side anyway, like the, I want to, I have some other questions and things I would Absolutely. love to get into that might be a little grittier. Are, are you guys down for doing some bonus content with us? Yeah, that sounds good. Can you tell our listeners how they can listen and become Patreon subscribers and, and follow your work? Sure. We're on, of course, all of the podcasting platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. So search the bearded vegans there. Uh, having done this for six years. We have almost 300 episodes. And I know that can be kind of daunting for people to get into. So we've actually started. So we've actually created a, hey, you're new to the podcast, you should start here playlist. So people can actually go to thebeardedvegans.com slash start here. And that'll bring you to a Spotify playlist with a, a brief introductory episode and then five of our favorite episodes in which we explain why we chose them and what we think they sort of exemplify about the podcast. So uh, that would be a good way to, to get into it. Otherwise, just scroll through the feed, find a topic that you find interesting, and then connect with us on our Instagram, which is, of course, The Bearded Vegans, our Facebook, and the Patreon. Uh, you can find by going to thebeardedvegans.com slash Beardo, which is spelled B-E-A-R-D-O. And how can people find Our Hen House? Our Hen House is also available wherever podcasts can be found. You could also go to ourhenhouse.org. We are doing a big website revamp this year. Actually, we have your logo as like inspo because we love the feeling of it and the energy of it. We love the feeling and the energy of your social media assets. So we're totally like uh, just kind of using you. <laughs> Hopefully this feels okay to you, but we love you guys. And you, if you're interested in following our hen house, you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook as well at our hen house. And if you want to become a flock member, we do offer quite a, quite a lot of perks, as I mentioned earlier. So you could go to our slash donate and become a flock member, which is $10 a month or a hundred dollars a year. So that's how I feel like that's like a weird way to end up the main interview. So let me just ask you one last question and then for our purposes, we'll jump into bonus. If you could do this again, what do you think you would do differently, if anything? I mean, there's like little technical stuff that I think we figured out that probably didn't need to, we didn't need to be doing those things at the beginning. But honestly, in terms of the structure of the show, I feel like it ended up where it is because of the journey that we've had to get to this point. So, you know, I could say, oh, if we started over, I would start it with this current structure that we have now. 
but we're only here because we've kind of gone through these different iterations. So I don't know if there's anything that I would I would change about it. Well, I, I one, I would strongly consider doing seasons. I think mm-hmm. that that is just a chef's kiss of an idea mm-hmm. and getting some sort of break, even if it's just like a month every year or something, I think would be super valuable. I, Paul, I would love to start episode one with the format that we currently have. You know, we used to talk about what we've been eating and yeah, most people don't care about what I ate at some restaurant in a city that they are never going to visit ever. And we would talk about that for like 20 minutes early on in those episodes. <laughs> and, and I know, cause it'd be like, oh, I ate at these five places. I will talk about these five places. And I think that we, you know, we got early iTunes reviews are like, these guys talk about food for 22 minutes. And then I, you know, I would have loved to not have that be available as a part of our history. I always struggle with how much should the podcast be about us. And I, I like our name, but I'm also like, what if it just wasn't about us and it was more about like the animals or something? That's something I wrestle with, but I'm also, I don't know what it would be. So mm. why not? We're still the beer. What about what about for our hen house? The bearded animals. That's what we're going to call it. It's about goats. <laughs> the bearded lizards. And I'm sure there are other bearded animals, but uh, that's all I can think of. That's so funny. Goats. The bearded goats. That's what a cute idea. What about our hen house? Would you? Oh, hey, I was telling you guys earlier, I think we weren't recording that like at the very beginning. And, you know, I was 30 when we started. So I sounded kind of young and unsure of myself in a way. Like I I was telling you guys that I said, awesome. Like whenever anyone needed a transition, like they would answer a question and then it was my turn to ask another one. I would go awesome. So like, I wish I could just go through some kind of hypnosis retroactively and remove the word awesome from like every episode at the beginning. The other funny thing when we first started is that I was doing it all myself. I'm not sure I mentioned this, but I, I learned how to podcast going to the Apple store every single day to take the same exact free course every single day on podcasting. And I also bought podcasting for dummies. And I just uh, like, I read the whole thing. I had notes, I had stickies and I, and then I would go to the Apple store, which was near where we lived in lower Manhattan. And I had this laptop and I didn't know anything about microphones and I didn't know anything about like headphones. And so I just recorded into the microphone that was in the pot, in the computer. And so I'd record it and then I'd hand it to Marianne and she'd hold the laptop and record it awkwardly into, then she'd hand it back to me and we'd keep handing them my laptop back and forth because I didn't think, oh, we should plug in a mic. Okay. Here's the other thing. I recorded it in order because I didn't know I was recording. I was editing in like this podcast app thing that used to come on, not a, a podcast app, but like a uh, garage band. It was garage band, but like they had a very easy podcast interface at the time. And so I didn't know how to move things around. So I had to record the whole thing in order. And uh, so I wish that I had maybe started out with some better technical skills. <laughs> I think that that's one thing. And other than that, uh, I'm not sure. Marianne, do you think there's anything we would do differently? I'm not that good on regrets. Uh, I've had a few. (laughs) I'm sure there are things that we could have done better. I'm sure there's a million things we could still do better. But yeah, they don't really come to mind. I just keep plowing ahead. I just wish that the whole world would go vegan so that they would listen to our hen house. I mean, it's just... uh, 
you know, the animal rights movement is a tiny little group of people and I wish it would grow and more people would, because we have amazing guests and I just wish we could expose them to more and more and more people. If the world was vegan, would you still do our hen house though? Do you think there'd be a need? Oh, if the yeah. entire world was vegan yet. Well, yeah, of course. Like, unless they were animal rights, if the world was animal rights vegans, no, I think we, I think we could fold our tents, but you know, I mean, one of the problems we're having nowadays, I think, is this, not that the whole world's going vegan, but the just all of the focus on the food and, is, and sometimes for reasons other than the animals, you know, it still leaves out gazillions of animals who are being, right. uh, who are being abused in, in horrible ways. The fact that food, like, outweighs that by, by so much wouldn't hide the fact that, uh, that there are still many, many things to say about our relationship to animals and, and how screwed up it is. Yeah. And we should get into more of this behind our behind our respective paywalls, because I think I'm curious what you guys would say, too, about like where animal rights begins and ends and where other social justice issues come into play, because I think that's also something we both have in common. So let's close out this. And I just want to say again, happy anniversary. I love you guys even more than ever. Andy, I have a giant crush on you, whatever I'm saying it. <laughs> and uh, I I hope that we can celebrate again in the future for future episodes. Well, happy 600. And yeah, thank you for joining us. This was such a pleasure. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety's arising. Oh, we have some unusual stories this week. The first one is from India. This is in Bloomberg Business Week. PETA goes on attack in India over milk giants' treatment of cows. Now, that doesn't sound that unusual, but, you know, India is a little different. Uh, animal rights is a more accepted issue. For one thing, but dairy in particular is a very sensitive issue. The business that they are going on the attack against is Amul, which uh, is apparently huge, had a revenue of $7 billion last year, has a very particularly popular corporate mascot, the Amul Butter Girl with rosy cheeks and a polka dot dress. And, you know, that, that, uh, that so far doesn't make this all that unusual, but PETA, of course, uh, has a lot of Hindu people who follow Hinduism, and uh, the Prime Minister, very right-wing Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, who is a vegetarian from Gujarat, which is Amul's home state, you know, has made quite a a show of of kind of creating dissension between Muslims and and Hindus, and one of the wedge issues is is the protection of cows. Cows, of course, are very revered in Hinduism. Uh, though milk is drunk by most Hindus, uh, they still object to the slaughtering of cows and male calves. There seems to be a certain amount of naivete about what really happens in dairy. But but okay, so that's that sets the scene. And there have been problems with uh, human rights issues, 
violent vigilante groups have been attacking people suspected of harming cows. And, you know, Peter is like, hold the phone here, <laughs> harming cows. What about this huge dairy company? And so, yeah, uh, they're they're advertising exactly what happens to to cows in the in the dairy sector, um, and the the fact that it supplies the beef industry, and that cows are quote unquote raped through artificial insemination, and so this is kind of a big deal in India, and um, Amul is fighting back. Of course, they uh, want uh, to prevent the use of the word milk. For non-dairy products, that's pretty standard play. Uh, I think we started that here. Uh, another another feather in in our cap. Uh, I hope that's a well. It's not a vegan feather, is it? Uh, and so there's a really really lot of uh, dissension about this issue. It'll be really interesting to see how it plays out. And Amul is is arguing that they have all this foreign money uh, to flow to the American multinationals to produce their genetically modified soy or oat products. Uh, yeah, the fight is apparently on. This could end with, you know, Indians like giving up, uh, a lot of Indians giving up dairy milk if they find out how it's actually produced. So that is a fascinating one to watch. All right, lawmakers address shortfall of veterinarians in rural areas. This is from drovers.com. I, I had noticed a story several months ago about uh, the short shortage of veterinarians for for you know uh, animal abuse industries. Uh, you know there could be a lot of reasons for that. Maybe it's that a lot of veterinarians don't actually want to work in animal abuse industries. But of course, you know, uh, I I I, I kind of let it go, and now um, the industry has decided how to fix it. They're going to fix it with your tax dollars. There's already, they're already doing that. Apparently, there is this program called the Veterinary Medicine Loan Repayment Program Enhancement Act, which encourages veterinarians to practice in rural areas. And of course, when we talk about rural areas, there might be a shortage of small animal vets in rural areas. I don't know. You know, it might be hard to drum up practice, but that ain't what we're talking about. We're talking about veterinarians who work in the industry. And um, according to uh, Debbie Stabenow, who's uh, um, I'm a senator from Michigan. Veterinarians provide essential support for the agricultural economy in so many rural areas and small towns in Michigan and nationwide. So that's that's what the story is here. They're already giving them money to practice, well, your money to practice in these areas now, but the, it was taxed. So they're thinking, well, why should this shouldn't be taxed? Well, you know, why should they be taxed on this money that they're getting just to work for the meat industry from the government? The um, American Veterinary Medical Association, which never hesitates to throw animals under the bus, is, of course, wildly enthusiastic about this. So uh, I wouldn't be all surprised if you're not only going to be paying them, but unlike you, they will not have to pay tax on this money because, you know, they're working for the industry and everybody loves the industry. All right. Our final story is from Vox. How stressed out are factory farmed animals? AI might have the answer. This is a pretty creepy story. And apparently they there are people who are working, I think this is in the UK, on artificial intelligence to recognize individual animals by their faces, just as they do with humans. But that's not all they want to do. They don't want to just recognize them. They want to discern their emotional state by reading their expressions. Uh, and they've already done some of this work with, with non-farm animals, dogs and horses. 
Uh, and, you know, the funding for this is coming from people interested in the industry. And apparently they are going to scan the pigs' faces and be able to derive whether the pigs are happy. And as this article points out, happiness in pigs is a holy grail for animal ag. Not only is this funded by the industry, but, you know, the industry is wildly enthusiastic about the idea that they can they can prove that the animals in factory farms are happy. Uh, getting a little troubled by this, maybe. Uh, as this article points out, the project of discerning the emotional state of pigs and the meat industry's larger push to invent new technology that promises to improve animal welfare illustrates the fine line between meaningful efforts to reduce animal suffering and so-called humane washing, where animal welfare is portrayed as being better than it actually is. And it just seems like there'd be loads of reasons, of ways. If they control what constitutes the face of a happy pig, and, you know, they've done the exact same thing in what they call preference testing, like they have they, which I imagine they're they're still doing, though maybe they're replacing it with this uh, cockamamie scheme, is that they they compare an animal, like one of the pre famous pre preference testing tests is they allow chickens to basically choose do they do they want to be on flooring that has uh, that is cage cage flooring that is narrow gauge or wide gauge and and it turns out that they like the narrow gauge better because they can stand on it easily and so they will pick that does that mean they're happy and when they do these tests and and look at these pigs uh, faces which and try to figure out whether they're quote unquote happy or not this is the example they're giving Pigs kept in pens with multiple generations tend to experience stress, particularly true of younger pigs, whereas relatively stress-free environments can be created by giving pigs essentially an all-you-can-eat buffet. So what they're planning on doing is apparently testing all of them in factory farm conditions, but one will be a slightly higher circle of hell than the other. And then they'll be able to say, well, those pigs are happy because we're looking at that's this is my guess about what's going on. But this is going to happen. So just preparing you for that. We're going to see a lot of talk about happy pigs. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able... You can support us by joining the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, or you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course... Tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. That's me. And to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez for her work doing research and for Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for his work editing. Thanks to Lori Johnston of Two Trick Pony for her graphic design services. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook page on Tuesday for your bonus content. Thanks so much for tuning in and for changing the world for animals.